0: Welcome to Healing America with Dr. Jim White. Jim has been investing, coaching executives, and turning around companies for over 30 years. Now your host, Dr. Jim
1: White. Hi, and welcome to Healing America. This evening, we're honored to have a little surprise winner for history, Jack Norman Rakoff. It's such a pleasure to have him on the show tonight. and uh, when I was uh, researching uh, Broken America, I actually researched a lot of his material on the Constitution. so it is a real pleasure to have him with us this evening to talk about the Constitution and some of the political events that occurring today. And uh, Jack is, uh, is an American historian and author and professor at Stanford University. Jack, thank you and welcome to the show. Happy to be here. Thank you. Let's jump right into your um, uh, your your book, Original Meanings. And uh, in in your book, and just uh, uh, perusing, it outlines the conditions of deliberation that uh, led to the adoption of the Constitution. What were some of those deliberations that occurred at that time?
0: Well, there's a whole course of deliberations, which if you if you describe them as a story, and mm-hmm. you always have to have your chronology straight. Probably want to go back to the early 1780s. You know, the Articles of Confederation, which were our first national constitution, it had been framed in the mid 1770s, weren't ratified until 1781. As soon as they were ratified, the different proposals to amend them in modest ways were made. Uh, None of those proposals succeeded. The basic problem was that to amend the Articles, you needed the consent of all 13 state legislatures that proved impossible to obtain. So you have, a, you have a kind of period in the sometimes called the critical years, in the you know, right after the Revolutionary War ends, where there are different efforts afoot to figure out, you know, how do you strengthen, you know, rather somewhat modestly, the national government under the Articles, which is essentially a, a single chamber kind of Congress. Mm-hmm. And um, there comes a point in 1786 after several of these efforts of. There's one effort made in 1781, another in 1783, another in 1786 to, to get some amendments, you know, considered and adopted. After all those fail, uh, James Madison, you know, with in some ways the existence of Alexander Hamilton and John Dickinson a couple other notable revolutionary leaders, in effect, go for broke. I mean, having run out of options to amend the Articles in the way that was prescribed by the Confederation itself, they kind of went, uh, you know, outside the box, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And they came up with the idea of let's hold a general convention held under the authority of the state legislatures with the approval of the Connell Congress, and let's see what happens. Mm-hmm. I think they did it. They didn't do it out of excessive optimism. I, I think they, I really think they felt they were running out of options. But if they didn't do something dramatic, um, they worried, you know, with, you know, with good reason that the whole confederation might devolve into two or three regional confederation, two or three, two or three regional confederacies.
1: If the frame of the Constitution, Constitution is a was deliberating, how, how different, different do you think the Constitution would look, or would it be the same?
0: You know, it's such an open ended question. A lot of people uh, have started to agonize about it. I've thought about this case. I thought about actually writing a book about it. You know, we don't really know. Yeah. Uh, you know, the Senate drafted a bill some years ago, which would have laid out rules. For how the convention would deliberate, that such a convention would deliberate. You know, there, there are proposals afoot. There's one afoot now to have what's called a limited constitutional convention that would you know take up a single, but uh, you know, uh, budget. I think the optimal amendment would be a budget, a balanced budget amendment. Mm-hmm. The problem with that idea is it's an open question. Could you have a limited convention on the basis of 1787? In effect, what the Constitutional Convention did was to more or less tear up its nominal instructions and say we're going to really think things over from scratch. I mean, in theory, they're supposed to propose amendments to the Confederation, to the existing charter. But in practice, they said we're not going to do that. We're going to kind of you know take up the whole issue in effect a novo, afresh. So people worry, I think, legitimately that if we had a, if we had a convention today, the idea you might claim to convene it as having a limited agenda. Whether you could enforce that. That's an open question. Here's another question that agitated James Madison a lot. What would the rules of voting be in a yeah. constitutional convention? There's a, a big debate took place uh, just before, just when the Virginians and the Pennsylvanians, the first two delegations to be present, were there. They you know, they wanted to debate, should we move against the idea of an equal state vote, which was the rule of voting for the Congress, uh, where every state, regardless of size, had the same vote. Um, the large states all favored we have to move to some sort of proportional representation you know portion to population and or wealth and question was what should the rule of voting be within the convention and you know the Pennsylvanians said let's we should have proportionality from the start Madison said no let's not do it from the start because that will really alarm the small state delegates we have to convince them of it as as we're as, as we're going up so all these questions are open but yeah. you know we reached a moment in our history where there's so many questions are coming up I mean, not just around the Trump presidency, which is mm-hmm. you know disastrous enough in its own right and is is called into question. Firstly, every constitutional norm we're attached to. There's so many questions at play uh, that you know you can imagine in, in so many you know structural things that a lot of people think we need to deal with. But how you do it remains a great challenge, which is what makes the experience of 77 and 88 mm-hmm. so interesting. Mm-hmm. The way they solved the problem, if you're a historian like me, remains mm-hmm. a fascinating story.
1: Mm-hmm. It is, is fascinating, and uh, I'm going to ask you, have you I seen the musical see Hamilton?
0: Uh, we did. Actually, we saw it in Chicago uh, two years ago. I, actually, I was there to give a Constitution Day talk, at my dad's old campus. My dad was a college yeah. professor uh-huh. talking about Chicago politics, so I gave a talk at University of Illinois in Chicago where, where he taught for a long time, yeah. uh, and then we, we saw Hamilton on, on that same visit.
1: Yeah. My wife gave it took me to my seventieth birthday. That was my gift. My seventieth birthday used to watch that. I found it fascinating. Just That's a great idea.
0: Yeah, well historians love it. I mean they yeah. you know, I don't like the treatment of Madison and Jefferson.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: yeah. I'm essentially a Madison guy. But you know, but it's you know, the way in which it's awakened people's interest. And also, of course, the whole staging of it.
1: Yeah, you're right.
0: Multicultural American event. It's just it's so dramatic and so you know, so engaging, you know, it's, it's, it's hard not to love
1: it. Yeah. I love storytelling in that history. And you are an expert on James Madison. What kind of political skills did Madison bring to bear that enabled him to become the so-called father of the constitution? What were those skills that that he had? Well,
0: it's a combination of things. I mean, I think in matters that Madison found his vocation in politics you know, the 18th century politics was not really a profession particularly mm-hmm. particularly in America mm-hmm. there's in, in every, any institution you look at there'd be a lot of turnover a lot of rotation um, the whole idea you'd make a cure out of in the way the modern politicians do i mean of all the differences between our our political system and theirs i think the biggest one is the desire of politicians today to seek re-election you know and and you know and, and, and you know and, until they so they drop in their tracks, you know, on on the way out. But Madison was one of the, you know, sometimes it's called the young men of the revolution who, who discovered that his real vocation was to be a politician and I think also to be a deliberator. Mm-hmm. Uh, Madison's I mean, his first really twenty seven years in politics were all spent in deliberative bodies, meaning the Virginia legislature. Virginia Council of State, an advisory body, the Coydell Congress, the Virginia Assembly again, the first federal Congress, or, you know, the first four federal Congresses under the Constitution. So Madison thought a lot about the about the nature of deliberation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think in, he had a capacity to generalize uh, on the basis of his experience I and mean, to be, in a, in a sense, self-reflective about mm-hmm. what he had been doing. And so he had, uh, you know, one of my college, well, one of the, my university professors at Harvard, my did my graduate work, Judith Schlar, has a remarkable passage about you know Madison's capacity to think historically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's true. I mean, Madison was trying, you know, it's, it's a, a book I published recently called A Politician Thinking, came out a few years ago on, on Madison. It was meant to try to capture the way in which he was. It wasn't just that he was well-read, which he was, and he was educated the College of New Jersey, which, of course, is now Princeton University, uh, you know, under the tutelage of John Witherspoon, you know, very leading, who was the the college's president. So Madison was, you know, was well read in the same way that John Adams was well read, Thomas Jefferson was well read, Hamilton was well read. These guys had serious minds they are serious readers in a way that we would expect few contemporary politicians to be. But Madison, he was also a creative political thinker. And, you know, when it gets down to 1786, 1787, and he starts to prepare for the convention, uh, I mean, I've worked on these documents time and again in, in, in my career. Uh, he goes through a kind of systematic analysis of what he calls the vices of the political system in the United States. I've been thinking of actually writing a modern variation on this, you know, going back to what we were saying. No, seriously. I, at least I am yeah. seriously yeah. about yeah. this. And it's really, you know, it's really kind of, it's the basis for what became many of the famous arguments he made in The Federalist, you know, some months later.
1: Mm-hmm. But he
0: kind of, he tried to pull his thoughts together on the eve of the convention. You know, really, in you know March, April, 1787, the convention met. was supposed to meet in mid-May. Kind of funny, got its quorum together in late May. So you can see actually the rudiments, well, more than the roots. You can see the 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 essential components of Madison's constitutional theory, which we still study today. What we call the Madisonian Constitution. You see you see how he's pulling them together. He did it really to prepare his agenda. I mean, I think because he was such, because he spent so, so much time in deliberative bodies. And because he was so thoughtful about these, so reflective about the experience, I think Madison understood that while you couldn't always, you know, can't always get what you want, you couldn't always attain every objective you had. But if you were well prepared for debate, if if you mm-hmm. thought the agenda through ex ante before you know your lazier colleagues were putting their mind to it, you, know, you would gain certain advantages. So Madison, I think, was almost always the best—not you know, not maybe not universally, but almost always the best prepared
1: participant.
0: In any given debate, yeah.
1: and, and, and so in sense, sense if I ask, in sense, the politicians politician, uh, from math skills, skills and say, "What medical medical skills have you seen in these politicians that has Madison skills?" skills.
0: Uh, I didn't quite get that, Jim. Do you have to? Sorry.
1: The question is: In which politicians have you seen some of those skills in the decades since Madison? well of that's deals.
0: that's a great question you know i don't know we're so you know we we as a people and myself as a scholar we're so hung up on the founders that it's you know it's 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 hard to make great comparisons you know i you know many of the politicians i've met uh, i've really come to admire i mean i think the ones who are best you know congressmen you know you realize mm-hmm. when you have a chance to talk to them they, they know their issue, they know the issues they care about so well. I mean I think there are ways in which, for example, the congressional committee system um, mm-hmm. often works to and you know, and I think members pick their own issues, some mm-hmm. depending on you know what constituency they come from, but also depending on you know which issues do they actually care do they actually care most about. So I think among a fair number of politicians who are you know who, who are conscientious, uh, that desire to master the subject is, you know, is a skill that's worth a skill that's worth having. Mm-hmm. And on the rare occasions I've had, it, you know, on some occasions, you know, I've had a chat with them that, you know, that 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 often comes out. But what I do think is fundamentally different, <clears throat> you know, point I alluded to earlier is that I mean, from Madison's perspective, Madison hoped that in a, in a period when, you know, most most members of any legislative body would typically Serve a term, maybe two or three terms, but you know, then go off and do something else. And nobody could imagine back in the 18th century that you'd want to spend, you know, a, a life cycle going back and forth from Washington or the national capital, originally New York, then Philadelphia, then finally Washington. Don't imagine you want to go back and forth indefinitely, and you know, from your home plantation, your home office, whatever, your home farm. Mm-hmm. Uh, to Washington, I mean, it'd be you know you know to use an old 18th century expression, it'd be quite a schlep <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> exactly. to have to do that.
1: Yeah. yeah um, I, so
0: yeah. I think I think Madison hoped that over time you would develop, um, you know, uh, you know, kind of sense, you know, more of a sense of vocation that more and more politicians would be mm-hmm. would grow to be more inclined. But you know, the fact is, if you look at the federal Congress, you know, the, the mean term of service in the house of representatives for the first century down to the 1890s was 3 years meaning the vast number of congress members of the house were serving one or two terms very few senators served two terms what's happened since the turn of the 20th century and now has become you know such a dynamic, you know such a critical factor is members really want to die in office mm-hmm. they can't figure out how to move up they want to hold on to the office they have yeah. and i think that ambition i mean the you know or, or the I think it's I think it's worse than the Republican Party. I mean, I think it's true throughout the system. I think it's had more harmful effects in the Republican Party because the fear mm-hmm. of being primary there, and particularly because the Republican Party has moved so far to the to the radical right. You know, first with the Tea Party, and then now who knows with with QAnon, and I'm aware that's going to take the party. But the fear of being primary and have to toady to your voters mm-hmm. is really destroyed. There, there was money, and of course. Now the you know the fear of who knows where it will be? After, you know, this time next week. But you know, also the fear right. of losing Trump's favor.
1: Right.
0: So that's you know they will. You know, I mean, you know, I am a native, born Cook County Democrat, so you can discount. And my dad wrote a lot about Chicago politics, so this really <laughs> runs in my it really right. runs in my blood. But you know this, you know this, you know this fear that you know the worst thing that can happen to you is that you won't be reelected. There has to be some nobler sense of calling that ought to guide our political behavior. You shouldn't be in the embarrassing position of a Lindsey Graham prostituting yourself, you know, for the favor of uh, Donald Trump, of all people.
1: Yeah, of all people. You're absolutely correct. And and that leads to my uh, next question on these same lines. Uh, Politicians today, I mean, right as we speak, what lessons could they take from the founding fathers? What, if they said, you know, what's there? What would help our politicians today? Like I said, we're just a few days away from this general election. And uh, I, I, I share your sentiment on the Republican Party and, uh, and, and both, both sides of the aisle. I mean, in my opinion, we, we got so much uh, work to do after November the 3rd. We're going to say who is elected. I think our work just begins on November the 4th. So, what lessons could we learn, politicians could learn from the founding fathers?
0: Yeah, it's a <laughs> the question's so open-ended, I think. Um,
1: it is. It's you know, down we, a little bit. Know, so to be honest, one. Uh, you said one, two, one. I, 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 I think they were, you know, they, were,
0: they were empirical thinkers.
1: Yeah.
0: I mean, I think, you know, I'm often, you know, because, as you know, I, I've done a lot of work on what did the Constitution originally mean on this one. My big yeah. book, Original meanings the mm-hmm. book I want the Pulitzer for is, you know, is written on that theme. And when people ask me, it's you know, often the case, you know, what would James Madison think about this today?
1: Right.
0: Sometimes there's a kind of clear constitutional norm that you could say, okay, mm-hmm. well, here you could you could reason pretty simply from A to B and come up with a firm conclusion. But more often, I say, Madison was a deeply empirical thinker. Uh, he lived, you know, he was he was well read and was deeply reflective about his reading. You know, he knew Montesquieu, he knew Locke. He knew Probably knew Hobbes and Aristotle, et cetera. But he and his generation were engaged in a revolution, and they and they had to think and rethink the nature of their experience. And that's what you know. The best historical work that and, and I'm a part of the school that's been done on the founding period really understands that the the let's say the quarter century that takes you from the Stamp Act controversy of the mid 1760s down to the adoption of the Federal Constitution and the creation of the new government was a period of intense political experimentation. That's one of the problems with saying the constitution had an original meaning, because they understood the whole thing was that the process of being created and explored, the idea that you could fix the meaning of a constitutional text at the moment of its adoption, when the whole process of implementing it was necessarily so dynamic. To a historian, that's kind of nutty. For the lawyers it works for some of the strange reasons. For historians, it's a kind of nutty way to think. So I think that capacity to think critically about one's own experience, to understand its significance, which I think everybody who believes in democracy, we should believe that, you know, this is the one, This is, you know, you don't have to take, you know, Churchill's formula, you know, the, the worst form of government except for any any other has been invented. I think we should be morally committed to it mm-hmm. and to the norms that, that we associate with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think we need to be, you know, in thinking about the founding, um, there's a lot to admire in what they did. Of course, these days, there's a lot to criticize. I mean, there were many of them, including Madison, Jefferson, uh, you know, we're slaveholders and we're not we're not wholly comfortable with that embarrassing and, you know, chal- right. and challenging that. Mm-hmm. But I think I think that capacity for self-reflection, which I, I personally think Madison represents, you know, so so well in, in such interesting ways. I mean, Hamilton's the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were deeply thoughtful, well educated, you know, well informed, mm-hmm. and they were mindful of their own experience, but in a way that was, you know, somehow self-critical. Mm-hmm. Stay
1: with, stay, Ma- with stay with Madison a little bit more. Uh, how did he react when some of his pro- propositions failed? Uh, for example, what was his? Uh, uh, he worked so hard. He was so passionate, so well, so prepared. And we didn't make the case, and uh, and and his case would just fail. How, how did he respond to that failure or to that defeat?
0: I think he took a deep breath.
1: <laughs> it yeah. took him a while to
0: <laughs> If you go through, if you go through his records, you know, go go through his correspondence. Near the, you know, so the convention adjourned on September 17, seventeen eighty-seven. Uh, two days before the birthday of my older grandson, he could have come out on the seventeenth. Came out on the nineteenth. Anyhow, what are you going to do? Um, so, uh, you know, at the end of the convention, Madison was actually, in you know, a pretty, glo- I won't say gloomy, but mm-hmm. the things he wanted most, he had lost. He, he didn't want the equal state vote of the Senate. Thought they were, he thought correctly there was a disastrous idea. He didn't want the safe legislatures to elect senators. He thought there'd be a lot of problems arising from that. He wanted to give the national government what he called a negative, we would say a veto on state Mm -hmm. laws at least to protect itself against interference from the states, maybe to intervene within the states to protect minorities. He lost that. He had the idea for having a council provision that he thought would help to improve the quality of legislative deliberation. It would be a joint executive judicial, kind of like the president of the Supreme Court, which would have a limited negative, a limited veto over legislation. Mm -hmm. So he had all these favorite proposals that he lost. And at the end of the convention, because he was, you know, like being, since he worked out his own agenda in advance, he was pretty, you know, set back, whatever, disappointed with the outcome. So there's a period of about 10 days where I think he's kind of blue. And he, he writes mm-hmm. this long letter to Jefferson about mm-hmm. a month after the October 24, 77, so five weeks after the convention journey. He wrote a long letter to Jefferson, who was off in France, you know, as our minister to uh, right. Versailles, uh, explaining um, why the idea of having a negative on state laws, which he lost, was in his view. The, I think the least possible infringement, the least possible infringement on the sovereignty of the states, that's that's a really strong statement. But then, you know, there's a campaign that has to be won. And if your choice is in between, you know, persisting, you know, staying under the of Confederation, which was usually, usually described as an imbecile in government. Um, imbecile is the term often used to describe the kind of Congress in the 1780s. Um, if that's the default position, and you think it's going to, it's likely to lead to a devolution of the union into two or three regional confederacies, and you have the Constitution out there, a lot of things you didn't get in it, but you know it's going to be an improvement mm-hmm. in significant ways. So I think that's, you know, I think that's Madison, the seasoned politician. I mean, he was, he was so invested in his own agenda that losing it was, you know, it was tough. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know uh, adjusting to that defeat was tough but you know there you know there's a struggle on mm-hmm. and you know you, you couldn't go back to zero you had to kind of go you, you couldn't get you could, if you can you could get 1.0 at least you could try to get 0. 0.75 or whatever
1: yeah well that word imbecile could be used today as well in my opinion <laughs> you know a lot of the things we have in, uh, in in our political environment uh, How did Madison and Jefferson become the architects of the nation of the first opposition political party?
0: Well, it happens, you know, it begins really out of an opposition to Hamilton's financial program. I mean, it comes out of, you know, the, Hamilton, who I think was a brilliant statesman, you know, a great architect of Mm -hmm. the nation's, you know, uh, economic policy. I mean, you should should never undervalue Hamilton's genius.
1: No, not not right.
0: But, you know, they they lost these fights. Uh, You know, I personally don't think their losses were all that significant. Hamilton's program basically was a success. But they thought that Hamilton, you know, they weren't sure Hamilton really was a committed Republican. Uh, they felt, you know, Hamilton did, you know, a couple of famous moments, one at the Constitutional Convention, one there's a famous dinner party that Jefferson hosts where they talk about the British Constitution. And Hamilton still sounds like he's a monarchist mm-hmm. in some sense of the term, and not really, you know, not really committed Republican, you know, lowercase are, but a you know, committed Republican. In principle, so they, you know, they set out to organize an opposition party. Uh, I, my story, of this and i have worked on this, and in fact, I'm working on it even now, in, in different ranks of mine. Is I, I think what really mattered, though, was not—wasn't the initial disagreement over Hamilton's economic policies, you know, things like assuming the state debts and you know chartering a national bank and all that. I think what really mattered was when Britain went to war against fr- Revolutionary France in 1793. And all these issues about the control of foreign policy came into play. And then the Republicans, meaning Madison and Jefferson, now they start calling themselves the Republican Party, realized that the, the presidency had a much larger sway in decision making than they had originally imagined. And mm-hmm. I think they also learned that, for you know, it's, it's a little counterintuitive for, for us today, mm-hmm. but the foreign, I'm gonna, hold on one second. I'm gonna, Foreign major, but you know, but foreign policy issues mm-hmm. had a kind of resonance. Mm-hmm. That issues about you know banking. I mean, who really understands banking? Mm-hmm. Even today, we have a hard time figuring out what makes it work. You know, who really understands how tariffs work? I mean, Donald mm-hmm. Trump doesn't know how tariffs work.
1: <laughs> Taking that not. not.
0: Example, I mean, what an idiot! You're right. but, you know, <laughs> in passing, Agreed. professor remarks. You know, but um, you know the. Uh, you know I think the foreign policy thing you know the whole idea that and of course is the French Revolution took a turn towards you know the terror. The terrorism in that sense had a somewhat different meaning from what it's acquired today but it was still just a sinister mm-hmm. you know a threat to deal with. Yeah. so I think they, I think they, I think that ratcheted that ratcheted the you know the, the discussion up mm-hmm. um, and then you go through the different I mean I won't go through the, the details of foreign policy controversy, but mm-hmm. I think that the the key, the key thing about it is that, you know there was no idea in 1787 88. That you'd have such a thing as national political parties. I mean, Madison worried about factions, but factions were more like interest groups that had particular goals in mind rather than systemic alliances to carry elections. You know, from one you know from one cycle to the next. But very quickly, you know, from between 1788 when the Constitution was ratified, and let's say 1792 or certainly by 1794, and party co- party competition, in a premature form, is starting to emerge. And that key thing is when Washington retires from the presidency in 1796, mm-hmm. even though he delayed his retirement, the announcement of his retirement as long as he could to try to, because Washington was by that time a pronounced federalist. Mm-hmm. Uh, as soon as he announced his retirement, both parties were revved up and ready to go. Mm-hmm. And the way we know this is that all the electors, mm-hmm. presidential electors were already servants of their parties.
1: Mm-hmm. We have about four minutes left and uh, you got a new book. Beyond belief and beyond conscious, uh, just a few minutes on that. What's what's what, what's that book about? So, uh, exercise well, religion.
0: Yeah, well, the, book, the book's part of a series called Inalienable Rights that uh, mm-hmm. my friend and colleague Jeff Stone, the University of Chicago, has, has edited. It's supposed to write kind of provocative books about different aspects of constitutional history with particular emphasis on on rights-oriented issues. Um, because because thinking about religious freedom was so fundamental to Madison's thinking. You know, it just it was actually the first issue to which he was, first public issue to which he was deeply committed, going back to his, when he comes back to Virginia from his college education. You know, I wanted to write a book about, yeah, I wanted to grab that topic for myself, but, but to write a book that would be historical nature. Most people write about the First, Am- first Amendment today, mm-hmm. they're mostly, and, and particularly in the series, they're mostly con- constitutional lawyers and they mm-hmm. care a lot about doctrine. I don't care that much about doctrine, which strikes me as being kind of a mess. To be honest, but I but I, I the the book, the book rests start by book rests on two claims. So the, the subtitle of the book is The Radical The Radical Significance of the Free Exercise of Religion. And the two points I wanted to make was to show how issues of religious freedom were integrally related to American constitutional development. So point number one is of all the rights we claim the one that places the greatest uh, emphasis on our moral autonomy as individuals, on our, you know, kind of, in a sense, on our individual, I don't not, maybe not the best term, but on individual sovereignty or individual autonomy is the free exercise of religion. The ability to uh, say what you think, believe, believe what you want to believe, uh, no matter how radical the thought may be, um, that's a fundamental right. I mean, most, most other rights, when we think about them, are essentially procedural in nature, Mm -hmm. you know, that meaning essentially what most rights do is to say that when government acts, you know, think about search and seizure, you know, 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 all all the different aspects of criminal jurisprudence. Mm -hmm. When government acts, it has to conform to some fixed set of norms, right? It it can't be wholly arbitrary. It can't be tyrannical. It can't say, I'm going to do what I want to do because I want to do it now. You have to have some set of standards that will reassure the citizen that you know, in a certain sense that there's a there's a broad notion of due process out there that, you know, that the government has to comply to. The case of free exercise, we're saying government's not going to act. You alone. I mean, if you could if you could make certain kinds of overt acts that destroy the public peace, the way, let's say, 17th, 17th century Quakers would do, or maybe sometimes, you know, 20th century Jehovah's Witnesses or 19th century Mormons, there may be certain overt acts you do that are so destructive of social harmony that they should remain subject to jurisdiction. But the fundamental matter of belief is something government should not regulate. In the 18th century, that's a fairly radical position. To have religious dissenters out there implies, you know, who are not subject to public scrutiny, implies a source of disorder. So that's point number one, to think about why this matters. And I think the other aspect of this is today, if you think about issues of freedom of expression, we we don't want to talk about people's religious beliefs if we can avoid doing it you know, we want to kind of, and, you know, we'd rather have a general free speech, particularly judges and lawyers, mm-hmm. we'd rather have a general free speech doctrine under under which we could subsume claims of religious truth. But historically, I think claims about religious, the freedom of religious expression preceded claims about freedom of expression more generally. And anyway, so that's point number one. Second point is, let's think about the general American theory of constitutional government. It says that all power government exercises is delegated from the people themselves to the institutions of state, legislator, executive, judiciary, whatever. Um, in the 18th century, you would have said the power of government was plenary in nature. There was no subject it did not reach. Right, Government could legislate about anything. There was no realm of behavior that was off the table. To remove religion from the scrutiny of government, therefore, illustrates what the idea of delegated power means. Because now you're saying an area of behavior that no society previously would have said, you know, we're not gonna bother with this. You know, we're gonna just essentially privatize this. Mm-hmm. Uh, nobody would have said that previously. It's too dangerous. Mm-hmm. Religion is, is, too, is too provocative. People kill each other it. Yeah. So of course the state has to regulate it. Mm-hmm. But to say, no, actually the best solution is we're gonna essentially privatize it. Mm-hmm. We're going to ta- We're gonna take it off the table of public action. We're not gonna have established churches. We're not going to quibble and quarrel over who gets the benefits of public support. You know, we're going to turn all religious institutions, actually follow the reason of John Locke, into voluntary associations. Mm -hmm. And Madison sees this, correctly, sees this as a great idea, which is why religion was in better shape after the revolution than it was before. So that's kind of some of the great things in the book.
1: I tell you what, we got to ha- we got to have you back. We could have this discussion for hours and hours and hours. And if I don't start doing the wrap up, uh, I, I'm going to get in trouble here. Uh, it has been a pleasure. Uh, perf- how can people reach out to you if they want to lo- learn more about your work? Do uh, you got a website? Uh,
0: well, they can always email. <laughs> just email, e-mail me. Right at Stanford. Edu. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I have a somewhat probably somewhat dated web page the Stanford yeah. history department. I don't, you know, there, there is no, there is no rakehold.com yet. So I don't, maybe I should set one up.
1: Yeah. We, you, yeah. That, that would be a good one for you. That good. One. So uh, professor, thank you for your time. I, I really enjoyed it. And like I said, I use a your your work. And when I was working on broken America, so thank you for what you do and thank you for your contribution and uh, uh, hopefully we can uh, chat again in the future.
0: I'd be happy. I'd be happy. Because I'm retired, so why not?
1: <laughs> okay. Well, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna set that up. So, uh, thank you very much, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Professor Jack Rickoff, it's, he's been with us for the uh, the uh, show today. Next week, uh, we'll we'll be back uh, for with another session. And uh, we're, we're by the time we get back, it's going to be an election day. So please, please, please go out and vote and uh, wear your mask. You know, wear your mask social distance and uh, be safe until next week have a great evening
0: thank you for your participation and interest in healing america with dr jim white to stay in touch with jim go to www.healingamericawithdrjimwhite.com